Well, welcome to 1 John 2, 12 through 17. And if you notice, the very beginning is divided in half. And the first half is this beautiful poetry um, that John wrote. Um, and it's kind of like when my commentators say that he's kind of like saying, you know, you guys are doing good. Good, good, good. Encouraging, encouraging. Because then, then he's going to get to the commands. <laughs> so... Um, he, in this, in this passage where he talks about writing to you little children, writing to you young men, writing to you fathers, he's really bringing us into his family. Um, John, by this time, is a little old man, and this is his family, these believers, and you're just like we're each other's family. Um, and we have a father who is God, and we're in his family. So um, he's kind of giving us encouragement as his children um, to be strong in him, like he mentions to the young men, that the word would take up residence within us and that we would be victorious over Satan. Um, but the way he says it, it's kind of, it is poetry. Six times John says here in these verses, I am writing or I've written. Three different titles he uses to identify his audience. Children, fathers, young men, and, and each group he addresses them twice for emphasis. So um, let me just read that little bit for us. I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you children because you know the Father. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you're strong and the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. So if you get out your outline, we <clears throat> in Roman numeral one, um, John is talking to three different people. And he's really not talking to little people and medium people like you know, like the 30 to 50 crowd and the 60 to 80 crowd. He's really talking about your spiritual journey here. So three stages um, of our spiritual pilgrimage or journey is mentioned in these three um, people. So you have your children, and he talks about then your fathers, and then you talk, he talks about your young men. So I am writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing and I'm going to just I'm going to talk about each one. So we're talking about children and number 1 is little children. And um, he's talking about that your sins are forgiven. Remember he just talked about that in the beginning of this chapter in verses in 2:1, well 1:9 and then 2:1, your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. And um, this is uh, in the perfect tense, which means that they have been forgiven and remain forgiven because of the name of Jesus Christ. Now, the name, you know this if you've studied a little bit, the name represents the person. It's not just saying, like, you just can't say Jesus Christ, like, that's the name. It's talking about who, everything who Jesus is, his character, his promises, what he's done, his propitiation, that's when they say the name of Jesus, it's the whole enchilada, okay? It's not just Jesus Christ, his little name there. Okay, so you have been, your sins have been forgiven in, for his name's sake. 
Okay, these are the earliest conscious experience of newborn Christians. They rejoice, these little newborn ones, because their sins have been forgiven through Jesus Christ. And because their sins have been forgiven, remember the whole theme of John is fellowship and abiding. Now we can be in fellowship with God. Um, so, uh, so this is a reason why Paul, when he talks about this, he says we can cry, Abba, Father. And the verse there is Romans 8, 14 through 16. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Again, let's talk about this family. This is a family. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So because we've known the Father, um, that's almost like it puts us in that beautiful relationship. I want you to go back when you were like four years old and your dad came home from work and you just ran to see him, okay? That's the, that's the child part that we are. Um, Spurgeon has this very cute quote, and he says, um, little children, when they begin to talk, they go to school. And how proud are they of their fathers? Their father is the greatest man that ever lived. Nobody's like him. The teachers, you can talk about famous warriors, famous presidents, but nothing compares to my dad. Um, because he says, their fathers fill the whole horizon of their being. Well, so it certainly is with us and our God. Um, so in your outline, children are simple, dependent, helpless, unpretentious, unambitious, unassuming, trusting, they make no claims of greatness. So sometimes, and you know, it's funny because this is in our spiritual walk, um, and as much, okay, so when I was, <laughs> when I was a guidance counselor, when I, when I first got my degree, I was a guidance counselor to high schoolers, okay? So then I, and I was like 25. So I had to wear suits every day so they would know I was not a student because I really looked about 12. And so I wore suits every day and, and I had to put on airs. And I realized that that's really not me. Uh-huh. Um, so, oh, thank you, Holly. Holly's getting it for you. So, um, okay, so, so I would put on airs. And then I realized that, um, that that just really wasn't me. That really wasn't me. I was really, you know, in the parent, adult, child, I was the child. <laughs> I was strongly child. So when I went back to work after staying home with the kids for 10 years, I went back as an elementary school counselor. It was so much better because within us, no matter how old we are in the Lord, there's that child part that wants to crawl in his lap, that wants to run and jump and say, take care of me. There's a part, and we can do that, and he allows us to do that because he said, you can call me Abba, Father. That's Dad. Okay, so A, children, we got that. B, children are not worried. <laughs> worried. Now, is everyone saying, okay, I failed that test? Okay, I'm just saying, children, really, you have to teach them to be worried about things because they really just don't, they just trust you if you're in the room as the, a grown-up, 
you know, as the parent, they're just happy. They're just, and they, and honestly, they gravitate to you. You know, I've told you the story that, you know, I used to study and I'd have all my books out and I'd put all the Chrissy's toys in the other room. And then one by one, she would bring every toy and sit and she'd be underneath my desk while I was studying because she wanted to be around me. And there's a part of us that is a child that um, wants that security of being with our dad. Um, and let me just say something else. Fellowship is two-sided. God wants that for us. He wants us to want to be with him. He really does. Um, okay, so children are the exact opposite, by the way, of the successful woman of the world. We're just going to get there later, okay? But I'm just throwing that out there. Um, Jesus said in Luke 18, 16 through 17, he said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Psalms 131, 1 and 2, David prays. And now this is David the king. He's like the man of the hour. Don't get me wrong. He's like the, he is the big deal. But this is how he prays in this psalm, and it's so beautiful. He says, Lord, my heart is not proud, neither are my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in grave manners or in things that are too difficult for me. Certainly I have quieted and soothed my soul. Like a weaned child rests against his mother, my soul is like a weaned child within me. There, there's a beauty to that. So that's the child, okay? Then we move on to fathers. That's number two. And he says, I'm writing to you fathers, and he says this twice, because you know him who is from the beginning. So these are the spiritually adult in the congregation. They're beginning, you know, their beginning of the walk has deepened. Um, so fathers have progressed into, this is on your outline, a deep communion with God. He says, I, all Christians, mature and immature, have come to know God. That's not, you know, because the kids even know God. But their knowledge with him ripens after the years. Um, so, and the reference to the beginning is probably a reference to the immutable, eternal God who does not change, even though humans do, um, who doesn't change throughout the years, who is forever the same, who's never in a rush, and that all generations, all generations have found their refuge in him. So my, one of my favorite um, scriptures for this is Psalm 90, which is the prayer of Moses, who knew God, who was his friend. And he says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you formed the earth and the world from everlast to ev everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So there's something about that fathers that just know that they know that they know that they know. And he has been found faithful year after year after year. Um, so then we go to number three, which is young men on your outline. 
I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. And then he writes again in verse 14, I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Okay, so he's writing to these young men. Now these are, you know, in between the fathers and the children, these are the young men who are very busy involved with the battle of, being, of Christian living. Um, so the forgiveness of past sins must be followed up by deliverance from sin's present sin uh, and present power. And so these are the men that are on the battle lines, okay, that are fighting the good fight. Um, so the hint that he gives is the secret of these young men's victory is that the word of God abides or lives in you. Um, so they are, uh, number A, the word of God, i.e. scripture, abides in you. So the word of God abides in you, and I'm going to give you two things. Um, the, one, the most obvious one is scripture. Okay, that's the most obvious one. Um, Psalms 119.9 says, How can a young man keep his way pure by keeping it according to your word? In Psalms 119.11, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin, sin against God. Uh, Psalms 119.105, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Um, Psalms 1, 1 and 2, David writes, Blessed is a man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, or stands in the way of sinners, or sits at the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in that law does he meditate day and night. See, it abides in him. That makes us strong when it resonates with us. 2 Timothy 3, we were just talking about this at our table, 15 through 17, Paul is writing to Timothy, his young son in the faith, and he notices, he says, and how from childhood, Timothy, you've been acquainted with sacred writings, the holy scriptures, which were able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, because all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Ephesians 6, 16 and 17, um, again, because it talks about, when he talks to the young men, he's talking about having victory or overcoming the evil one, evil one, i.e. Satan. Um, Ephesians 6, 16 and 17, 16 and 17 says in all circumstances take up the shield of faith which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one and take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of god he uh hebrews 4 12 is one that you probably all have memorized the word of the lord of the word of god is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So what the young men are doing here is they are keeping this body of truth, which we are blessed to have many copies of, many translations of, and they're hiding it in their hearts so that they don't sin against God. This is so important. Um, 
because even when even when Jesus was tempted, what did he do? He quoted scripture all three times. We're going to talk about that later. But I'm just saying that this word is so powerful. It's living. It's active. It engages us. It cuts through wherever we are. And it shows us truth about who we are. It shows us truth about who he is. So you can, if you want to engage, this is, this is the sword. This is what you want to fight with. But B, get on your outline, the word or the logos of God abides in you. Remember John started his gospel, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He's talking a lot about us abiding in Christ. So he also could be mentioning, and we don't know because we don't know John's mind. He's long gone. But the word, he could be meaning Jesus. Okay? So if Jesus is abiding in us, that also helps a lot when dealing with the enemy, don't you think? So uh, John 15, 4 and 5 says, Jesus said about the vine, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. For apart from me, you can do nothing. nothing. Ladies, ladies, ladies. So many Christian works, I can look at my life and say I've done things, but I've done them in my own strength. And that's why they don't turn out so good. <laughs> he wants to do it in, a, in me and through me. Um, in Ephesians 6, uh, 10, Paul says at the end of the armor passage, right? He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Okay, so one of my favorite little guys, Alexander McLaren, he's long dead. He wrote, um, it is also the means by which we join ourselves to him who is overcome. And we make his victory our victory. He will become your conquest if you wed yourselves to the Lord by simple faith in him. So he says, let Jesus Christ into your hearts and keep him there, and he will make you strong. He tells us that if any man open the door, he'll come in and sup with him. I want to urge you that the one thought that is possible that the divine Savior can enter my spirit and yours, can really abide with us, and in, it can really be in our lives to strengthen our hearts and be our portion forever. The rest of us can render help from the outside, but he can render help from the inside. Um, so because Jesus comes into our hearts, if you let him, his very sweetness and omnipotence of power, he will breathe his own grace into our weakness and strengthen you from within. So we have two beautiful thoughts there about how we are to be young men and how we're supposed to win battles and be strong in the Lord. So we're going to transition with this word of encouragement that John's giving. He's moving on to right now to the first command, the first command of his epistle. 
And so let me read it to you. It says, do not love the world or the things of the world. For if any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life do not come from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So this is, he was getting to, he's good news, and then here's the bad news. Because here is, he's telling us, remember he told us in chapter 1 that he wants to have fellowship. And then he went on about how there's a problem with fellowship, and that would be sin. And how sin hinders our fellowship, right? And then he talks about how we have forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Well, now he's talking about another problem. And it's talk about the world. And worldliness is a problem for every Christian. There, in every stage, the world is a problem. The Bible is very clear. It defines our enemies as the world, the world system, um, the flesh, the, that nature within me that wants to do wrong, and the devil. And so those are the three enemies. And so we're going to talk about one of these enemies today. Um, and it's called the world. Okay. So he says, do not love the world or the things of the world. So the command is not, this is in your outline, the command is not to love the world. Um, this command is grounded in two arguments according to these verses. Number one, the incompatibility of love for the world and love for the Father. So you want to put Father in there. And that's verses 15 and 16. And then the two, number two, the transience of the world as contrasted to the eternity of those who do God's will. And that's verse 17. So Warren Wearsby tells a story about a group of first graders who just completed a tour of a hospital. And the nurse who had directed them was asking if anybody had questions. So immediately, this one little precocious guy says, how come all these people who work here are washing their hands all the time? <laughs> um, so after the laughter had subsided, the nurse gave the wise answer. They're washing their hands for two reasons. First, they love health. And second, they hate germs. So I want you to realize that, and that's why this lesson is the love that God hates. There's, remember John, we're talking about John, the master of contrast. Everything, it's one or the other. And he's saying very, very succinctly, very plainly, he's saying, if you love the world, you can't love him. You cannot, this is not Panera, you can't pick two. You only get one. <laughs> so... Um, so uh, James 4.4 4 says it even better. It says, you adulterous people. And adulterous, you know, again, that's somebody that's stepping out, okay? It's loving somebody that they're not supposed to be loving, okay? That's what he's calling these people. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity or hatred with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God? Or do you suppose that it, there's no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? He's jealous of us when we love 
somebody else. Now, if my husband came to me and said, you know, I really, really love you, but you know, I found this little girl, this little girl at the, at the cappuccino place, you know, and, but she doesn't mean that much to me. Okay, is that gonna fly with you? No, it doesn't fly with God either, okay? But we flirt with the world all the time. I hate to tell you, we do. It's kind of sad. Um, Okay, so John teaches us not to love the world because if we do, the love of the Father is not in us. So let me just talk about the world. Okay, he talks about the world. He uses in these three verses, he uses the world, that term, cosmos, six times, okay? So what does he mean by that? Um, Other people will talk about the world and they'll talk about the beauty of creation, but that's not what he's talking about here. Um, Actually, his gospels and his epistles are consistent in how he defines what he calls the world. Um, So it refers to like a worldview perspective, okay? It refers to fallen humanity, um, and it is hostile to God. Um, so what's our attitude to be? Galatians 6.14 says, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world is crucified and to me, to me and I to the world. Okay? So let me talk a little bit about our attitude and what this, there's three things I wanna talk about about the world, okay? And I'm gonna summarize a lot of what John's teaching is and we, we you know, you're, if you read the gospel, I'm, I'm not making this up, so I'll give you scripture so that you know. Um, but A is, and this is not on your outline, the world and Satan. Okay, so first of all, I ha- you have to know that John sees the world, his cosmos, is under the dominion of Satan. He is the prince of the world. John 12, 31, John 14, 30, and John 16, 11. The whole world is under the control of the evil one. Um, he says that in two chapters, five, in 1 John 5, 19. The devil is, titled, is entitled the one who is in the world. The world is his sphere of influence. Similarly, we're going to get to this next week, I think. The spirit of the Antichrist, which was coming and even now is already in the world. Many false prophets have gone out into the world. So the world he's talking about as far as the, the dark thing and with Satan is that it's, a, it's a, anything that has to do with the kingdom of darkness and that has not been born of God. That's how he's calling the world. The world does not know him. Does it, the world does not know his fa- the Father, John 17, 25. The world and the church are thus portrayed as polar opposites. Remember, we do a lot of contrasting, okay? So, they're separate, distinct groups of people. One is under the dominion of Satan, and one, the other one is born of God and knows God. Um, since the world's prince has been driven out and stand condemned, John 12, 31, John 16, 11, it follows that the world itself is doomed and is already passing away. Remember, he just said that last lesson. Remember, the light's shining, right? Okay, so that's the world and Satan. 
The second point under the world is the world and God. So what about the world and God? Well, the sinful world is ruled by Satan. However, this world is the object of God's love and his saving activity. He, con- he does not condone materialism and sin, but his compassion embraces all of the poor creatures that the devil has enthralled. You know this, John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Um, in God has sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. 4.9, we're going to get that in chapter 4. The father has sent the son to be the savior of the world. That's 4.14, just two, two lessons away. And we know from last lesson that Jesus Christ died to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sins, but the sins of the whole world. Okay. So we have Satan in the world, we have God in the world, and now we're going to have the world and the Christian. Now, back in the day, there was a thing called monasteries because the Christians at that thought in that time kind of misconstrued scripture, and they said, oh, well, the world is bad, so I am going to live over here with only nice spiritual people, okay? And we're just going to have good times over here, spiritual times over here, and oh, so sad about the world over there. <laughs> but they're evil, so, and they, they're going to give us cooties, so we're going to stay away from them, okay? And let me tell you, that idea has been prevalent really since the church began. Um, And I'm just saying that, yes, the world is evil, but we don't get to run. (laughs) He he says to us, go into the world and preach the gospel. (laughs) He doesn't say go hide from the world until Jesus comes. He says go in, be in the world, but don't be of the world. Okay, so let's talk about that for a second. So hatred is, um, is characteristic of the world, but love is to be the characteristic of the Christian. So we are to represent, we are to be the light that's shining where? In the dark place, which is the world. And uh, so I want you to know that um, we are, honestly, you know, you, you've got to analyze your own heart in all of this. There is a part where we come away. We certainly come to church to be refreshed and to be with spiritual people. Um, but we should be in the world. It's, the Bible is very clear. Um, John 17, 14 through 18, Jesus is praying his high priestly prayer. And he says to God the Father, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. And I'm not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world, but sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, so as I send them into the world. 
So let me just say, we are to be a light. Jesus was the light of the world. He said, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but have the light of light. Then he passes the baton. You can almost hear it like a track race. You ever been in a relay? Bam! He passes it to us and says, now you are the light of the world. Let your light so shine in such a way that men see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So we are to be in the world as lights shining, reflecting the love of Jesus. I am telling you, that's a big assignment. And that's why he says, why don't you abide in me and we'll just do this together. <laughs> because I think that it's going to work a lot better than me sending you out there. Okay, In 1 John... Five, four, and I can't even wait to get there, but I have to wait like two more chapters. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Okay, so John, let's get back to our line. John highlights three things in the world, three things that the world promises but can't deliver. And this I'm stealing from Daniel Atkin and his expository of John. Number one. The world cannot give you what you need. 1 John 2, 15. Let me read it to you. Do not love the world or the things of the world, for if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The longing of the human heart is to be loved and to love. We were created to love God with our whole hearts. Remember, God created us to have fellowship with him in the garden. Sin entered. Um, but we want to love and be loved. And the problem, really, with the world is that it loves the wrong thing. <laughs> um, Joe, uh, okay, so notice that the world, back to your outline, notice that the world wants from us. It wants love. And the way the world wants us to love it, because it doesn't want us to send valentines and chocolates and roses, what does the world want from us? It, what, lo, this love is expressed in time, attention, and expense. So write that in here. So how do you love the world? You love the world by you're spending time in it, you're giving attention to it, and you spend money on it, okay? Now, what Martin Lloyd-Jones writes about this, that it shows that this world, which we're calling this organization, this outlook of mankind, um, basically it ignores God. And it doesn't recognize him. And it lives a life independent of him. A life that's based on this world and this world only. Now, I want you to think about this is what unsaved people look like. Okay, they, they, they don't consider God. They say, oh God, when they drop their hammer on their foot. Okay, that's what, that's what, okay, let me keep going with my quote because he's so much smarter than me. Okay, <laughs> mankind ignores God and does not recognize him and lives a life independent of him, a life that is based on this world and this life only. It means that the outlook that has rebelled against God and has turned his back on him it means, in other words, the typical kind of life that is being lived by the average person today. They're stuck in it. Who has no thought of God, but thinks only of this world and his life, 
who thinks in terms of time and is governed by certain instincts and desires. It is the whole outlook upon life that excludes God. Okay, we got that? So, we already read James 4 about being an adulterer. Uh, Matthew 6.24 says, Jesus said, No one can serve two masters. He will hate the one or love the other or be devoted to one or despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Okay, moving on to the next verse. The world, this is number two, the world cannot give you what it promises. Verse 16 says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of possessions or life is not from the Father, but from the world. Now, I have to tell you because I'm running out of time. The desire here is not a negative word. It's negative by context, but it's really talking about an inordinate of, uh, affection or desire. Okay? So <clears throat> uh, it means that instead of controlling our desires and using them as we ought, it means that we're controlled by them. Um, so A is desires of the flesh. And I'm going to have to really go fast. Okay. This is the tendency that we have as humans <clears throat> to fill a natural desire in a way that is contrary to God. For example, sexual appetite gives way to immorality. Physical appetite gives way to gluttony. Wine gives way to drunkenness. So it, you take something that is, it, it's like I do, I, I eat to live, but now it becomes I live to eat. Okay, you see how that works? Okay, we got to move on. Desires of the eye. According to C.H. Dodd, it's the tendency, tendency to be captivated by outward show, what your eyes can see. It's the appearance of a thing, not the substance of it. It's the opposite of being authentic. According to Martin Lloyd-Jones, it's the, it's the man that lives according to false values. They judge by appearance only. How do you spell social media? <laughs> we can talk about the apparent need to appear on social media as a success. Every time you go to a beautiful place now, you go to the Grand Canyon or whatever, you won't see people enjoying the Grand Canyon. You see them with... And, with sticks and selfies <laughs> everywhere. In fact, it was actually on the news how many people have died because they've fallen taking a dang selfie. Can you even believe that? <laughs> because it's all about the appearance of it, not the substance. They're not having a good time. They're taking pictures. So when we went to, we took our family to Europe like once. <laughs> it's very expensive. But anyway, our favorite thing to do because we had, she's going to listen to this. She's going to yell at me later. Um, our favorite thing to do was my daughter, the youngest one, was all about the selfies. So we would photobomb all the selfies. So, so we have the Eiffel, Ta Eiffel Tower, and she's sitting there, and we're like, ah, we go back there. <laughs> but I'm just saying that, it, that it's just a thing. It's so common right now, so we got to move on. Okay, C, the pride of life. Or the pride, this is C, yes. Okay. The pride of life, oh, no, this is not on the outline. I'm almost getting to the next outline. 
Uh, the pride of life is the pride of possessions. And this is the person who glories in himself rather than God. This is vain glory. Um, Calvin said, he who glories in himself steals the glory from God. And he says it better, but anyway. So this is when I make idols of all my good stuff. Uh, we, I suffer from affluenza. <laughs> Pride, power, possessions, prestige, and position. This is what I'm looking for. This is how I feel good about myself. Um, and this, ladies, is the pride of life. Um, it promises, remember we said in the beginning, this is something that it promises, but it doesn't deliver. Somebody asked John D. Rockefeller how much money it takes to make a man happy, and his famous quote says, yeah. just one more dollar. Solomon said, whoever loves money has never has money enough. Um, it's, this, is a, this is a huge problem in our society today. Um, so I just want you to know that <coughs> these three things are pretty potent stuff. I want you to do your homework because there's some good homework questions in there. But... But according to scholars, here's on your next outline, uh, this is one of the most important verses in the Bible. It identifies in vivid terms the weapons the world uses to, to seduce men and women into joining his side. This is one of the most important. Um, it defines, it identifies in vivid terms the weapons, that's what you want to write in, weapons, the world uses to seduce men and women. These are the same three weapons that seduced Adam and Eve. Genesis 3, 6 says, the woman saw that the tree was good for food, desires of the flesh, and delightful to look at, desires of the eyes, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom, the pride of life. Um, in your homework, I want you to look at the temptations of Christ, because you'll find <coughs> they are there, too. Um, but that's a homework thing. Okay, James says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire is conceived, gives forth to death, sin, and when sin is full grown, it brings forth death. Um, Genesis 4, 5 through 7 Read that later. I don't have time. That's Cain. And uh, God talking to Cain saying, why are you angry? What's going on here? It also talks about that desire. So verse 17, and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Number three, the world cannot give you what will last. Now, this verse brings to conclusion John's argument as he's contrasting the two loves, the two lives, the two approaches to life. Why should we side with the world? Why give your life to an empty imitation, a worthless fake, a temporary illusion? The world, this evil and deceptive system of Satan, is continually passing away and its desires with it. The darkness, if you read verse 2, verse 8 last week, is on the run. The darkness is a light shining. The darkness is on the run. The world, 
Um, in 2.17, it says it's not going to last. Light and that which will last forever is shown up in Jesus Christ. What remains, what lasts, what endures? The answer is the one who is doing continually. The verb tense is doing and continue to do the will of God. This one abides continually forever. So this reveals the folly, in your outline, of worldliness. What we invest into the world cannot last because the world is passing away. Satan has orchestrated the biggest Ponzi scheme ever. <laughs> oh, he's totally drawing us all in. Oh, just hang in there. Just wait. Just wait. I'm just saying that the people that have the most in this world are so unhappy. They're poster children to how this doesn't work. I just, oh, it was so sad. I don't know if you read, uh, one of the um, pageant girls, Miss USA. Miss USA, just jumped out of a window yesterday. Yeah, she's a beautiful woman, has a lawyer, lawyer uh, had everything, and she jumped out of a window yesterday. I'm just saying that the world says this is all that you need. And so many people are chasing after it. And they're never going to get it. Do you ever see dog racing where they have that little rabbit thing and it runs around? And man, they, those dogs, they really believe they're going to catch that thing. And they are, they are going for it. So are we. Our world is set up for us to chase after these things. And God is saying, if you're smart, you're going to do my will. So, John 4, 34, Jesus, who is our example, because we remember we are walking in his steps. That was two weeks ago. My food, the thing that I really want, my physical desire for food, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. He says in John 5, 30, I cannot do anything on my own. I judge only as I hear. My judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 6, 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Now, the definite, one of the definitions of will is the act of of strongly desiring something to happen. And this is the antithesis of verse 16. You know, because the less of the flesh, the less of the, uh, the eyes and the pride of life. That, that's, that's the desires. But here, this desire is for his desire. Oh, it's so cool if you think about it long enough. Okay, um, so I should be like Jesus not concerned in my life with what I want, what my desires are. I should be concerned with what he wants. That's how Jesus lived his life and finished the work. And don't we all want to be like Paul that says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. There in heaven is a crown for me because I have run this race. I've run the heck out of it. And he did because he didn't do what he wanted. He did what God wanted. Um, so definite, uh, Romans 12, 
one and two, and I'm about almost to close. Um, Paul says it so beautifully. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. He's like begging. Please, please present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That crucifixion, when you crucify the flesh, that's part of that, okay? When you say, not my will, but your will, like Jesus said in the garden, that's what he's talking about here. And then he goes on to say, and this comes right into our text today, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and purpose and perfect. Our desire should be like Christ, whose main desire was to fulfill his father's desires. When my desires are for his desires, then this verse promises that I will abide forever. In a world that is so transitory, that offers so much permanence, but is lying because the father of lies runs this world and he dangles it at, come, come do this. You're going to be so happy if you lose 20 pounds or you're going to be so this if you get a little work done, okay? Or you're gonna, if you get a, a, a better job or if you go to this school, you're, this is all, and all the people that have all these things are jumping out of buildings right now? Are you even kidding me? Or can we just say that's not working? But he says, if when my desire, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So John 17, 20, and 21, Jesus prays in his high priestly prayer. You're going to get tired of that, but I'm, I'm going to keep saying it. <laughs> I do not ask for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word. That would be us Christians. So that they may all be one. Fellowship, one. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, so that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So whoever does the will of God abides forever in him. Amen? Amen.